Tov, everyone. Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to the new Aliyah day for the year 5782. We are in Parsh Sheet. <clears throat> I am uh, glad to be with you. It's been a while since we've uh, had the opportunity to have the Aliyah day together, our daily Torah study, uh, because of the, um, the high holy days and Sukkot. And probably every year, just because of uh, how involved all of the holy days are, this will be a um, uh, a common uh, thing where we take the Aliyah day off, probably for the month of Tishrei, um, most likely uh, in, in its entirety. Uh, but I'm good to be with you. So Bezrat Hashem will be uh, beginning today, the fourth, uh, looking at the fourth Aliyah. And we'll be doing some things a little bit differently in this new season with respect to the Aliyah Day. We're going to try to stay as best as we can more uh, topical uh, on our uh, Aliyah. And so you'll notice when we have the titles for the Aliyah Day, we're going to try to make them a uh, little say Breshit, in this case Breshit Aliyah 4, tomorrow, God willing, will be Breshit Aliyah 5. And I'm going to try to be thematic as, as best I can to keep, as I, as I said, a topic. And the reason for this is so that things can be uh, easily searched or, or um, I, I, guess, I guess, better searched. And people uh, want to find topics that we've discussed. And God willing, that will be the case. I am also uh, attempting to make sure that we have the Aliyah on the Anchor podcast as well. So in addition to YouTube, we're going to be this year... Uh, trying to be faithful to keep the Aliyot uh, on the podcast on Anchor. So God willing, that will uh, work out as well. And those people who uh, it's better for them to use uh, the podcast for whatever reason uh, will be able to have that uh, as well. <clears throat> and also, we are going to, uh, this this time around, we're not going to read the each individual uh, Aliyah. Uh, I'm going to leave that for all of us to read. I'm going to give you, uh, both in the description of the video and verbally, uh, what the Aliyah is so that you can read it. But for the sake of time, because there's always so many sources and we, we typically run out of time to discuss them, uh, just for the sake of time, we're, going, we're not going to read together the Aliyah uh, just so that we can get to these sources and uh, find what we uh, want to, to share. So, uh, just so you know. So today, uh, this week, uh, is going to be, of course, the study of Breshit. This being uh, the fourth day of the week, we are now going to begin with the fourth Aliyah. Uh, because of the holiday of Sukkot, we did not get to the first, second, or third Aliyah, but uh, that's just the way it is because of the holiday. So the fourth Aliyah in your Humash. Uh, begins in chapter uh, 3 of the book of Genesis, or the book of Breshit, uh, chapter 3 and verse 22, and it's going to go, uh, the fourth all that goes from verse 22 in chapter 3 until chapter 4 and verse 18. So <clears throat> chapter 3, verse 22, uh, all the way until chapter 4 and, and verse uh, 18, that's where <clears throat> it stops. And today's uh, Aliyah deals with the expulsion from Ganadin and the sin of uh, Cain, 
uh, and his uh, murder of, of Abel. And so we're going to discuss that. And as Radashem, <coughs> pardon me, we're going to get to uh, uh, looking at um, uh, this portion and see what Hashem should want to show us. Incidentally, I want to say that we've, we had a great holiday. A great Rosh Hashanah, a really great Yom Kippur, um, and of course, uh, a wonderful Sukkot. In fact, in, and I would say that in in the 10 or uh, 11, is it 11 or 12? I forget. However long <laughs> Sar has been around, uh, what is it now, 11 years? 11 years, I believe. In 11 years of Sar history, I, I have to say that uh, despite the fact that we had so many people that were out with sickness, and we even... Um, uh, one of our uh, brethren uh, passed away during the holiday. Just uh, that was very sad. But despite all of those things, I have to say that this has been really the best Sukkot we've ever had. And so uh, it's it really has. It, it, it's it's just the best the best Sukkot we have ever ever had. So I praise God for that. So looking at this story, I'm going to begin reading uh, or looking at this insight first and foremost. <clears throat> that has to do with um, the verse that says, Hoshem, So Hashem, God, banished him, that is Adam, from the Garden of Eden to work the soil from which he was taken. Interestingly, it notice that Torah does not say he banished them, but he banished him. And so in this story we know looking at the Torah, that it was Eve, Chava, who was deceived by the serpent, and she partook of, of the forbidden fruit. And then she gave the forbidden fruit to Adam to eat. And so, as has been discussed in times past, it's very easy to blame Eve for everything. And to a, and to a degree... The woman does bear responsibility, and I think this is why uh, women, even though they are the weaker of the two sexes, they cannot physically overpower a man. Only in rare occasions is that possible. Uh, despite what we see in the movies, <laughs> we see the we see the heroine in the movie, uh, you know, like the Black Widow or whatever, and she's uh, she's beating up like fifty men. Um, and that's, that's fun fantasy, but in real life, um, that would not happen, of course, but you know, she doesn't have the power to over, to, to defeat a man physically or, or force him to do something physically, but women. And I think that, uh, if we just put aside uh, any prejudices, I think that even the women among us would agree that women have tend to have anyway, a, um, a particular gift of manipulation. And I don't mean to be negative about that. It's just the way it is, right? You know, we, it's, it's, it, and I think that goes back all the way to the Garden of Eden. It doesn't excuse man because as we're seeing here, Adam's, Adam forfeited his role when his wife uh, offered him the forbidden fruit. It was his responsibility to say no. Uh, not only was it his responsibility to say no, it was his responsibility to redeem her. He had the opportunity to say no, and then he had the responsibility to make restitution. 
and to bring her back into right alignment, to teach her the Torah again, to remind her of the mitzvot. But unfortunately, he, forf- he forfeited his role. You know, that's a very common thing today. If you look at statistics in religious circles, we see that women are usually very, very enthusiastic about faith and religion. And men are less so. Uh, you see in congregations where you have uh, at least as many women, sometimes more women. And then we have a scenario in which we find in certain areas where women have taken roles of leadership. And uh, they've taken male responsibilities. Uh, much to the chagrin sometimes of the men who um, get frustrated at that. But, but my... My uh, statement to this is, why is this the case? Why is it that, um, that this has happened? And usually it's because men forfeit their responsibility. They forfeit their role. They're not engaged. They would rather watch football, you know, than go to a prayer service. Um, they, they'd rather go to a gun show uh, than to come to a... a um, uh, a Torah uh, study. Uh, nothing wrong with football. Nothing wrong with uh, gun shows and those kinds of things. Um, you know, uh, those are wonderful. But where do we put our priorities? And so man forfeits his role. We see this very often. He forfeits his role and allows the woman to take the lead. And then, of course, it creates a problem. So when all of this goes down, when Hashem comes around to banishing Who does he banish? The Torah says he banishes him. So Hashem, God, it says, banished him. Why does it say them? And the answer is because the responsibility is on Adam. The responsibility is uh, on the man. You know, this is the other thing, I think, and, and we've talking to men. You know, we talked about, just a second ago, we talked about Hava and her failure and how women, I think, part of the Yetzirah that entered into women is this ability to be manipulative um, and to influence and so on. And, very, and they do so usually very cunningly. Uh, but what, what happened to man? What happened to man? What entered into him was pride and arrogance, as we're about to see in, in just a moment as we look at Cain. But pride and arrogance, and so what does the man want? The man wants typically to be the, 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 the head of the house, whether it's literal or spiritual. He wants to be the head of the house. He wants to run the show. He wants the woman to, find, to, to follow his directives. And, of course, that's only true if the man is following the ways of God. You know, gentlemen, listen to me. You're only the man of the house as long as you're living a godly life. Your wife is only required to do what you tell her to do so long as what you're doing is in accord with Hashem. It's kind of like the military. The officer can give the command so long as, and, and, and let me back up, the officer can give the command and the, the men under him are obliged to follow his command so long as, and this is the caveat that everybody forgets, so long as it's both what? Legal and moral. 
So an officer tells the men that in a foreign, you know, if, if the American military is in a foreign country and an officer says, hey, I want you to sh- kill all of these innocent civilians and burn all their houses to the ground, uh, the men cannot say, well, my officer gave me the order, so that's why I did it. That doesn't excuse them. Why? Because when the order is unlawful and immoral, they, they are therefore obliged to disregard it. So the scripture refers to women as men's helpmate. What does it mean? It means a helper against them. What does that mean? It means that so long as the man is following the path of Torah, then the woman is there to support him and help him. However, when the woman, the man is not following the path of Torah, the, the woman is there to be a helper against him, to push him back onto the path of Torah. And um, that is uh, the reality of, of life. Now, what happens to the man? Pardon me, I just realized my lulav box is still in the, in the, on, the, on the wall there. Pardon me. That's the box where the lulavim came in. So let me get that out of the way. I don't want that to be a distraction. My apologies. So anyway, what happens to the man? The man, how do men operate? Well, a lot of times we operate a lot of pride and arrogance. And so what happens is, is that we want to be the man in the Mexican culture. You know, uh, it's machismo, right? But we want all of the power and we want all that without any of the responsibility is usually the situation. Usually the situation is we want to be the head of the house, but we don't want any responsibility. We try to put all the responsibility back onto the woman. But yet, we at the same time, we try to be um, the head of the house. And I'm just telling you right now, that is very often the case. If, gentlemen, if you want to be the head of the house, then you have to take the responsibility for being the head of the house. If you want to be the leader spiritually of the home, you have to be the spiritual leader. You cannot expect your wife to follow you as the spiritual leader when you're not spiritual. And that's the, that's the, and I see this all the time. And it's, it's kind of like a, it's a natural thing for men. We we're timid about praying. We're timid about, um, about being a, a, a religious men. And yet we try to be the spiritual head of the house and we wonder why it doesn't work. And then our women look, look, life is not a vacuum. When there's no man there to be the Torah teacher, when there's no man there to be the spiritual leader, when there's no man there to say the blessings, when there's no man there to pray, then the woman is naturally going to be the one who steps up and does that because life is not a vacuum. You can't have, you can't be devoid of Torah in your house. And then we get frustrated. Why is she the one leading? Why is she the one doing that? I should be the one. Well, step up and be the one. And then women, you have to be careful not to fall into the sin of Chava. When you see your man leading, let him lead and help him lead. Don't be the one who tries to take the reins from him. Be the one who helps him be the leader. This is why women don't read from the Torah scroll on Shabbat. It's not a slight against women. It's just that that's the man's role. He's supposed to be the leader. He's supposed to get up and read. And so what happens when women step up and start reading from the Torah scroll, you're usurping the men and men won't step up. You're, you're becoming part of the problem and not part of the solution. So women, women should be encouraging their husbands. You have to go to shul. Why? You're part of the minion. What do you mean why? You don't show up. 
then there's somebody missing from the menu. You better get up and get dressed and get up there. It's your responsibility. Men respond, by the way, to duty. In case you're a woman and you're wondering, men respond to duty. It's our duty. It's our obligation. Men, women respond to emotion. It just it doesn't make it bad or, or good. It just, it's just the way it is. You know, Men don't typically respond to emotion, right? We respond to duty. It's your duty. You've got to get up there. I don't feel like going today. I'm a little tired, blah, blah, blah. You know, lie, this week was hard. I've got, an, I've got a runny nose, you know, whatever. And the woman says, you better get up. Why? Because you're part of the minion. You've got to be there because it's your responsibility to be there. You better get up because you're there to support. You're part of the company. You're part of the platoon. You're part of the, 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 the warriors. You've got to go up there. Besides, maybe Rabbi wants to call you to the Torah today, but if you're not there, he can't call you. You know what I mean? So that's what it means for a woman to be the, uh, the helper against him. So just an encouragement. When we see in the Torah, it's ultimately the man's responsibility. Why? Because it's Hashem that banished who? Banished him. Not banished her, banished him. So it goes on to say, <clears throat> then he stationed the cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden. When God wished that no one might know Moshe's burial place, he simply concealed it from us. This is what the insights say to this. This is from um, a famous Mag Mag Magid, the famous rabbi. When God wished that no one should know the Moses' burial place, he simply concealed it from us. And the Romans apparently tried to find Moshe's burial place in, in Sota 14a. It tells us this in the Talmud. But <clears throat> they couldn't find it. God did not set guards around the grave, however. And the reason was there wasn't a need to set guards around the grave. He had hidden it. It's concealed. It was the same with the ten tribes and the Sabbatheon River. No wisdom or cleverness can overcome God's wish to conceal their whereabouts. The location of Ganadin, that's the Garden of Eden, as well, is hidden to us, despite the Torah's clear indication of its location until the world is cleansed of Adam's sin. Incidentally, if you're wondering where the Garden of Eden is, it is in Jerusalem. The Temple Mount area. It's not in Iraq. You say, well, doesn't it give the location with the rivers? And aren't the rivers uh, somewhere in the in like the region of Iraq? Yes, but that was also before the flood. Garden of Eden is in Jerusalem, not in Babylon. It's in Jerusalem. It's still there, by the way. We just can't enter into it because it's in another dimension. So anyway, it says here, Hence, it is very hard to understand why God put guards at Eden's entrance. So why did God put guards at Eden's entrance if we can't find it anyway? What's the point? We can't get there. So what's the point of putting guards? So it says here, <clears throat> Clearly, there is something subtle being, dis being alluded to here. Now it says, very likely, the, the idea is that after mortality was decreed upon man, Eden disappeared from his view, so that one can no longer enter into it after death. During man's life, then, no guards were needed, but Adam's sin almost meant that even after death, not every person merits eternal life. 
So before a man's soul enters Eden, it must, quote, ask permission of the guards who guard the way to the, to the tree of life. Now, this rabbi goes on to say there are two ways to the, to the Garden of Eden, or to the tree of life, which is ostensibly to Hashem. Now, I want you to first pick up on something here that in Orthodox Jewish thought, when it talks about going to the tree of life, which is really the same thing as going to Hashem, it talks about there is a way to get there. Now, Yeshua naturally taught that he's the way, the truth, and the life, right? Which he is. The point I'm trying to make here is that having a way to God is a Jewish concept. So everything the Mashiach taught us, everything he did, his entire essence is 100% Jewish, but not just Jewish, it is Pharisaical Judaism, a.k.a. Orthodox Judaism, or toward true Judaism. So he said there's a way. So this rabbi is saying there's actually two ways to God. One is vis-a-vis the cherubim. Now, who the cherubim? The cherubim are the ones who sit atop the Ark of the Covenant, which is the mercy seat of God. These are the ones who guard the way to the Ganadin with a flaming sword. And so whoever, before their death, spent their time, it says here, crowned with Torah, studying Torah, teaching Torah, practicing Torah, when they get to the to Ganadin, they will ask permission to enter of the cherubim, and the cherubim will give them permission. Why? Because now this is important. Because the cherubim are on top of the Ark of the Covenant, which is the Ark of the what is what's the Ark of the Covenant about? The Ark of the Covenant is all about what? Torah. So the cherubim will give permission. You should come in. Why? Because you studied the Torah, you practiced the Torah, you taught the Torah, you and and therefore I know you. <laughs> the cherubim will know the person why because their life was a life of torah their life was invested in torah what does that mean to be invested in torah it means to be invested in hashem why because torah is hashem now there's another way he, he writes the second way is through suffering when we suffer in this life, it makes atonement for us. This is why the sages say that if we have a life of fully of bliss, where there's no suffering, everything is just great and wonderful, there's no, there's no issues, that's not a good life. We, secular humanism says, that's the life I want to live. I want to live a life where I'm, I'm lying in a hammock, drinking a, a beautifully... Uh, manufactured pina colada straight out of a coconut shell and the, the, the warm uh, sea breeze on my face, the, the sound of the waves crashing on the beach just nearby and a gentle sun uh, basking upon my skin. That is the way of uh, the good life. The sages say that somebody who doesn't experience uh, trouble or suffering or something of those nature, is somebody who is uh, in grave danger. 
because suffering, these things that we struggle with, are ways in which God uses to expedite or expunge our sins. So the two ways, so think about this, let's put this together. The two ways to Ganadin is vis-a-vis Torah study, practicing Torah, thereby the cherubim know us, and the other way is through suffering. So in other words, Torah plus suffering, or or you could say Torah and or suffering, equals the way to Ganadin. This is why Yeshua is the way. Because he is A, the Torah, and B, he suffered for us. Now, this is why the suffering that we go through today is a little bit of suffering. It's like the sages say that we were saved from Mitzrayim by the blood of circumcision and by the blood of the Lamb. So the blood of the Lamb is a lot of blood. You could say it's a bucket of blood. The blood of circumcision is barely enough to put a drop on a gauze pad. It's barely enough to soak a gauze pad, a little one inch by one inch piece of gauze. But the lamb fills up a whole bucket. So we say, well, we suffer. I suffer. Yes, but is our suffering compared to the suffering of Messiah? Not even remotely close. We study Torah. Now, Yeshua is the Torah. So the Torah intercedes for us. Does that mean we're not supposed to study or keep the Torah? Of course not. Will our Torah study ever be enough to merit? Of course not. But this is why when we study Torah and we invest ourselves in a Torah true life, in a Jewish life, this is why the the Mashiach is able to say, I know them. Let them enter in. So it says, this is why Hazal says that God hid away the tree of life and he gave us a Torah that is the real tree of life. Whoever studies Torah attains life in both worlds. I said on Shabbat that Messiah actually agrees with this statement because he says so to the uh, to the teacher of Torah in uh, Luke chapter 10. He says, if you keep the Torah, you will have eternal life. Why did he say that? Because first of all, it's true. Why didn't he say, believe in me? And the reason is because Yeshua is the living Torah. Which is easier to say? I believe in Yeshua, who's the Torah, or I, or I actually live Torah. Which is easier? See, there's a lot of people who believe in the Messiah, but don't follow him. That's true, isn't it? There's lots of people who say they believe in the Messiah, but really don't, don't follow his teachings. Don't, and really, more importantly, don't follow his example. Now, and we delude ourselves into thinking a lot of times that when we believe in him, even though we're not following him, that somehow that merits something. And the answer is it really doesn't. Because if we say we believe something but we don't do it, we don't really believe it. And that's the reality check we all have to make in our lives. This is why we all have to hold ourselves accountable and say, is my faith real or am I just fooling myself, which is really the biggest tragedy, and thereby fooling other people. So it's easier to say, I believe in him. It's much more difficult to say, I actually follow him. So therefore, when we toil in Torah study and we we try our best to live a Torah life, people have, in in the Greek mind, the Greek mind is, well, that's not really living my faith. What are you talking about? How can you actually live a Torah life but not have faith? I mean, that's kind of idiotic, isn't it? It'd be like somebody who takes takes, uh, vitamins but doesn't really believe in them. Then why would they take them? 
See, the fact that you take the vitamins means that you have faith. Now, it is possible to do things rotely and for show and all that, and that's all true. But in general terms, if you're actually living a Torah life, then you actually already have faith in God. So here we have a bunch of Greeks running around trying to tell Jews, listen, you just need to believe God. And here they're talking to Orthodox Jews who are serving God. This is why faith is prerequisite. Meanwhile, the Greeks are running around saying you have to believe God, but they're not doing anything. So which is better? To take the vitamins or to say you believe in the vitamins and not take them? Who's getting the benefit? It's self-explanatory, I think. So then we come to Cain, finally. All of this really has to do with Cain. Why? Because ultimately it's arrogance. That's really what Cain's problem was. It says that they offered uh, Cain and Abel. They're offering their, their sacrifices here. It says, After a period of time, Cain brought an offering to Hashem of the fruit of the ground. And as for Abel, he also brought the firstling of his flock from their choices. Adonai turned to Abel and to his offering, but to Cain and to his offering he did not turn. This annoyed Cain exceedingly, and his countenance fell. What was the problem? Really, in short, it's just this. <clears throat> Abel brought his very best to God. And Cain, Cain brought just something. This really is the takeaway for us all. We have to bring our best. This, this coincides with what I was saying earlier to the man and to the woman, that we have to bring our best to a God. Now, this applies to everything. It applies to our observance. It applies to our life. It applies to our uh, tithes and offerings. It applies to everything. We have to bring our first and our best. Can I just say this? Let me put it this way. If you get up in the morning and you go to work and you work hard, if you own your own company, you work hard for your customers. If you work for an employer, then you work hard for your employer and for your customers. You're working hard. You're putting on a good show. You're putting on a, a, a good faithfulness. We should, at, at the very least, have that much respect for Hashem. A lot of times we will do things for our employer or we will do things for our customers because we fear man. We fear what they might do to us. Our customers might fire us. Our employers might fire us. But yet when it comes to God, we're not so concerned. We can just work on a holy day or we can just eat unkosher food or we don't really care. Because why? What it really boils down to is we don't have fear of Hashem. We have more fear of man than we have fear of Hashem. And we don't really trust God. A lot of people are scared to ask their employer, I need to have Shabbat off. I need to have Yom Kippur off. I need to have Rosh Hashanah off. The employer naturally is going to say, ah, I don't know if I can do that. Like, well, it's a religious holiday. I really need you to do it. I'm, and the thing is, I just cannot, I will not work. I just won't. I can't. I would work any other day. I'll work on Christmas. I'll work on Easter. I'll work on Sundays. I just can't work here. A lot of people are scared to do that. Why? Because they have more fear of man than they have fear of God. And they don't trust God. They don't trust God. It's a test. It's a test. It's a test. And you walk up to your employer and you say, I have to have 
I have to have Yom Kippur off for religious reasons. And the employer says, I can't give it to you. You say, okay, I'll come in for work. Now you've just told your employer it's not really a big deal. You were just kidding. I mean, I'm just telling you. I used to be a recruiter. That's what, that's what you're telling. You're telling the employer, uh, it's not really a big deal. I was just kidding. As long as you say I have to come in, I'll come in. Because I was just kidding. So next time you say, no, this time I really have to go, the employer remembers the last time. That's the thing. We have to have that. What I'm trying to say is we have to bring uh, the passion. And Cain didn't bring the passion. He didn't bring the passion. He just brought some of his stuff, some leftovers. And But Abel brought the very first. And so therefore God turned to Abel. Not because he didn't like Cain, but because he understood Abel was really the respecting one. Cain, it, the, the rabbi brings down here, Rabbi, uh, this is Rabbi uh, Sorenskin, brings out, the, the other thing that, that Cain had here was an arrogance because Cain ultimately thought that he was on par with Hashem. That he talks here, it brings down really a, um, uh, a really novel idea that God had forbidden, at this point, had forbidden the slaughter of animals for man's own consumption. But Abel understood that that was for man. But for God, God wanted the slaughter of animals for a sacrifice. So Abel, therefore, slaughtered the firstling. But Cain had the attitude that since, since man cannot slaughter for himself, then neither is that okay for God. So in other words, what, what the rabbis bring down here is that Cain's ultimate problem was that he put himself on par with Hashem. He considered himself equivalent ultimately to God himself. And even then, Hashem tried to warn Cain and said, Cain, you've got to change your countenance. You've got to be careful. Why? Because sin is crouching at your door. And this is also an important lesson to us about Cain. We can overcome sin by changing our attitude. And the great thing is, is that we can change our attitude in the moment. We can change our attitude in the moment. You know, my wife and I were out uh, doing some, some, some errands, and we were at this particular place of business. And I happened to overhear an exchange. The, the, these two employees were very close to me. They were right in front of me. And one of the employees uh, obviously had a bad attitude. She was complaining about the customers or whatever and complaining about whatever. And I could, I could overhear her, um, but whatever. Uh, but one of her coworkers, who appeared to be maybe a little bit more of a supervisor type role, came up and was trying to help her, uh, was trying to alleviate a, a situation. But then I noticed that he got frustrated with her. And he looked right at her and he said, you know something, your attitude needs to change. And your attitude needs to change right now. Because what he recognized was is that she was just being, you know, haughty, arrogant, um, back-talking. You know, she was frustrated with whatever the situation was going on. 
And he said, you know, your attitude needs to change right now. And of course, you know, that she was, you could see she was having a little bit difficult time receiving that. But because I think that he was like a supervisor, she was kind of starting to realize, you know, she needed to do that. But what I recognized in that moment was, you know, we're human beings. And sometimes our attitude is, is uh, not always the best. And a shim looks at us like a loving father says, you know what? Your attitude needs to change and it needs to change right now. And here's the thing. Here's our encouragement to all of us. When we sense that, when we sense that we're not having joy and we're having experiencing anger or we're being uh, lazy or lackadaisical or things like that, we need to hear that inner voice of a shim that's saying your attitude needs to change. And guess what we need to do? We need to change our attitude. And that's what Hashem is saying to Cain. Cain, change your countenance. Sin is crouching at your door. What should Cain have done? He should have changed his countenance. But too often we don't change our countenance because of pride and arrogance. So let us swallow our pride and embrace humility. What Cain should have done what Adam, this goes along with what we said earlier in the broadcast about what Adam should have done. What Cain and Adam should have done is they should have reverted to the spirit of humility, re- reverted back to their sense of duty, and changed their attitude, and they would have been saved. When we persist in our negative attitude, that's when sin leaps onto us from the door. End of our Aliyah today. Thank you so much for joining me and being a part of this. I look forward to being with you again tomorrow for the fifth Aliyah. Until then, have a beautiful and wonderful day. Remember to support Sar Shalom Synagogue and Lapid Judaism. You can use the text to give numbers that are in the description of this broadcast uh, video. And I want to thank you all for your generous support. It's very, very important uh, for us to uh, receive your help because without it, we cannot keep the, the torch of Lapid burning. So I want to encourage all of you to please continue to support this ministry and help us get the light of Torah out. Shalom Aleichem, everybody. May you have happiness and health and joy. We'll see you a little bit later. Rebetzin will have her uh, class on Musar at noon today, God willing. So be sure and return for that. Shalom Aleichem, everybody. Look forward to seeing you tomorrow.